You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Scott Anthony, who is a senior partner at InnoSight Consulting Firm, but also the author of numerous publications, many, many articles, and a lot of books, including one called First Mile, another one, Little Black Book on Innovation, Building a Growth Factory, and then these two most recent books, which I have with me here, Dual Transformation and Eat, Sleep, Innovate, How to Make Creativity an Everyday Habit Inside Your Organization. Welcome, Scott. Greg, thanks uh, for having me. Really pleased to be here. Well, I guess we can start by talking about Eat, Sleep, Innovate, because when you describe the book, you talk about it as kind of a, a guide to transforming the culture of an organization to make it more innovative. And you say that the, the most powerful untapped source of energy in the world right now is the innovative energy within large companies that is currently going to waste. And so you're primarily focused on these companies that you called no debts, right? Or normal organizations doing extraordinary things. And I think your, your claim is that pretty much any organization has the potential to become a no debt. And the biggest obstacle is really cultural. Now, as someone who is an economist by training, we tend to focus on things like incentives and organizational architecture and, and structure and, you know, rules and, and so forth. And economists are generally more skeptical, or at least historically, were more skeptical of things like culture as a component of strategy. And that's why there's so many microeconomists and game theorists in, in the world of strategy. But you really emphasize the importance of, of culture. Has this always been your thinking when you've been looking at transformation and the obstacles to transformation? I see pieces of it in all of your work, but I think this work is one that is most heavily focused on the importance of culture. I think it's a great question, Greg. And, you know, sometimes I'm a little bit of a slow learner. And I think you definitely would see pieces of it as you look at the arc of the things that I and my colleagues at Innocite have done. But I think it's only recently that we've realized the vital importance of it and realized that we spent a lot of our time perfecting the answer to an incomplete part of the problem. And yes, of course, you have to have the right strategy and make the right choices and have the right systems and have the right structures. But I, I'm really struck by the comment that one of the co-authors of Eat, Sleep, Innovate, Paul Cobbin, made in his contribution at the very back of the book. Now, he's the chief data transformation officer at DBS. DBS is a case study that runs through the book. Big bank here in Southeast Asia that has undergone a really stunning cultural transformation from a slow-moving, stodgy, regulated bank to something that really functions like an agile tech company. And of course, there's lots of new technology, work structures, and all that. But what Paul, who was their chief or is their chief data and transformation officer said is that nothing changes unless people change. So yes, you need all of those things, but if you don't have actual human beings doing different things, you're never going to get different results. And it seems so stunningly obvious when you say things like that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think all of us who have some degree of economics in their background, I studied economics undergraduate, I have an MBA. We try to look for the logical, rational part of the problem that we could solve. And again, you need to do that. 
but that's only at most half of the answer. And if you don't get the cultural side, if you don't get the sometimes illogical side, right, you never have the true transformational impact that you're seeking. And Eat Sleep Innovate is an effort to really try to begin to unpack that and give some tools to manage what is a really tough challenge. One of the things I really liked about the book is this emphasis on what you call the shadow strategy of an organization. I spent some time studying animal behavior. And, you know, if you're trying to figure out the decision-making model of an animal, you typically don't ask them like, hey, you know, what's your decision-making model? You simply observe them and you reverse engineer kind of what their decision-making system and architecture looks like. But when it comes to people and, and organizations, when we're trying to figure out what their strategy is, we often kind of ask them like, hey, what's your strategy? Or we look at their their slogans or kind of what they say they're doing. And and you say, well, you really have to kind of look at what they're doing, right? And And that really describes their strategy. And this may or may not be in alignment with kind of the, the words. Do you think that people overestimate the simplicity of changing organizational strategy. You mentioned that there's no shortage of investments in strategy. There's no shortage of talk about strategy. There's plenty of what you call inoganda, which we sometimes call innovation theater out here in, in Silicon Valley. Do you think that people kind of overestimate the simplicity of strategic change? Is that what you're trying to go after? I think absolutely. And I think you've seen some really interesting research in this area that Don Saul at MIT has led over the course of the past few years. He's published a couple of really, really influential pieces, at least for the way that we think about things. The first one, he said, looked at a longitudinal data and said, you know, what percent of top leaders at organizations can play back the organization's top three priorities, could just say what they are. These are the mm -hmm. people who set the top priorities, but only half of them can actually say what they are. So if the top leaders can't say it, how can the organization possibly do it? And then he had a piece about a year ago that did some sentiment analysis, looking at Glassdoor and other places to try and tease out the actual behaviors that companies are following, and then compared it to what are their listed and stated values and beliefs and so on, and found there's basically no relation. So <laughs> the values that an organization has and the behaviors that it follows are kind of randomly connected. And that's really powerful, stunning, and pretty disappointing when you think about it, that organizations do all this work to go and set a strategy, do all this work to go and set values, and the things that they do are not consistent with it. And what your strategy is, is not what you say, it's what you actually do and don't do, what you fund and don't fund, the behavior you follow or don't follow. Now, the thing that's just disappointing about it to me personally is it's so obvious when you say that, but we all run into the trap of saying, hey, we've got this great PowerPoint document. We've got this great strategy. We, we've done all this work to carve beliefs on the wall in three-inch thick stone. Yet if people aren't doing it, have we made any progress against the problem? And the answer is not really, unless you actually have it translate into resource allocation decisions. So, you know, the opportunity, if you're trying to do a glass half full, is to say, great, we have done the work up front. So we've got the building blocks to be able to do it. We now have to go and turn to the next part of the problem where we go from talking to doing, the, the knowing doing gap that Dapper and others have written about. Yeah. And at the heart of what you're advocating is this idea of the beans. I don't think I've ever heard the term before, and I don't know whether most people are, are familiar with it, but I really liked it because it kind of described, you looked at all these examples of companies that had successfully created an innovation culture, and they all seem to have 
something which you would describe as a, a bean. Could you maybe talk a bit about this? First of all, how did you come to this realization? How did you come up with this concept? And then maybe we can dig into each of the individual elements of it. Yeah. So let me break that into two parts. So let me say first what a bean is, and then talk a little bit about the origin story. So the bean is an acronym that we essentially borrowed from the habit or behavior change literature that says, if you really want to get a human being to adopt a new habit, you have to fight a two front battle. And a bean is then an acronym that reminds you of each of those fronts. So the BE is a behavior enabler. That's the direct front where you're going after the logical, rational Kahneman system two thinking where you are carefully considering what you're doing. So you're giving people things like checklists and formal rituals to enable them to follow a new behavior, behavior enabler. The second front is AN, artifacts and nudges. This is where you're going after system one, the unconscious, where we make decisions without thinking about them. So you're giving people indirect ways to nudge and encourage them to do different things. So this might be the picture on the wall that soaks into your subconscious or gamification principles like a leaderboard that motivates you to do something different without you being conscious that you're being motivated to do something different. So behavior enabler, artifact and nudge. The basic origin story is we were doing a consulting project with DBS Bank, which again is kind of the red thread that runs through Eat Sleep Innovate. And they had made a lot of progress in their core organization, driving pretty deep culture change, but were struggling with this new organization or new arm that they were building in India and in Hyderabad. And they were trying to figure out what went wrong. As we went to study what had been working at headquarters, we saw this repetitive pattern about going to encourage new behaviors through these things that we ultimately called beans. As we went to go and study other innovative organizations, we saw this pattern perpetuate where people that really encouraging the behaviors that were driving innovation success, they had, again, without consciously thinking about it, without using the terminology, they had done things like this. So we said, okay, there seems to be a common pattern here. Can we now prospectively go and create these things to go and address the issue that was identified in Hyderabad? We went to inbound some of the big cultural barriers. We came up with some beans to address them. There were a bunch of other things. So you know, this is not a, a silver bullet, but it was a key component that helped to drive deep and lasting culture change. So we stepped back and said, okay, there's a bunch of stuff that we know about in the culture change toolkit. You know, we need to make sure that we get the incentives right. Leaders need to walk the talk. That's all really well known. This is an additional tool that can help people, these behavior enablers, artifacts, and nudges. So that's a little bit about what the idea is, where it came from, and the impact that we've seen from it, which is really deep and lasting when you do it in the right sort of way. Yeah, I think one of the, the points you made was that people don't, think their way into new behaviors, but rather kind of behave their way into new ways of thinking. And this was interesting to me because as someone who teaches in, in a university, we're trying to transform our, our students in the same way that managers and organizations are trying to transform their employees. And we tend to emphasize the think first approach, right? So we say, okay, listen, let's bring stuff out into the open and, and then let's examine it and then let's change the way we think. And then let's just go back and start behaving differently. And I think there's a limitation to that approach. I mean, you have to surface things and make conscious choices, but at some level, if you don't set up some architecture that enables you to behave that way in a more or less unthinking way, then it's probably not going to stick, right? You have to kind of create the environment in which that way of, of behaving is, is likely to survive. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, you know, I think when you're in the classroom setting, 
you've created a, essentially a safe space where it is possible yep. for people to think their ways into new ways of acting because there aren't countervailing forces. They've got a chance to mentally experiment with things and so on. When you go into a living, breathing organization, you have to fight a pretty insidious enemy. And that enemy is inertia. It's the way that things are currently being done. This is, again, one of these kind of blindingly obvious insights that hit us as we were working through the book. You know, in the book, we define innovation as something different that creates value. We list out the behaviors that enable people to do it. You have to be curious, customer obsessed, collaborative, adept in ambiguity, and empowered. You look at that and you say, well, the definition is pretty simple. Those behaviors are straightforward. Why is it such a struggle inside organizations? Well, duh, something different that creates value. Organizations exist to do what they are currently doing better, faster, more effectively, more efficiently. They've got reinforcing systems and structures, the shadow strategy idea that perpetuates the path that doesn't propel them into the future. So this barrier that you really have to go and smash through is this idea of inertia. And this is the real challenge inside organizations. It's not like they're bad organizations. Every organization, as Debbie once said, is designed perfectly to achieve the outcomes it's designed to achieve. I mean, it's a syllogism, but it's true. So if you really are trying to do something different, well, <laughs> you have to go and do something different. So, you know, you kind of hit yourself in the head when you go through this because it all seems pretty straightforward, but the doing of it is actually really hard to do. And that Richard Pascal line that it's easier for adults to act their way into new ways of thinking than to think their ways into new ways of acting, I think rings really true. And, and you see the experience again and again inside organizations. But look, why is it that curiosity, which is something which most people are born with, it seems a human characteristic, why is this in short supply, right? I mean, is it organizations that stamp it out or is it? Do people already come into the organization? I mean, this is a, obviously a big question that I've asked a lot of people. And so it's not the first time that I've thought about this. And you, you highlight that kids do better than MBAs on the marshmallow challenge. And that's something that I do a lot in, my, in some of my classes. But it seems like when you enter the organization, if the organization has the right culture, then that constraint goes away and, and it shouldn't be that difficult to stimulate curiosity. Is it, in fact, difficult to stimulate that? You point out how dominant this feeling of fear is, right? And fear around change and around new ways of, of doing things. But if, if people were, were curious and it's the organization that's stomping it out, then why would those individuals be fearful? How can the organization remove that fear that people might have with respect to change? Is it difficult to address? No, I don't think it's difficult to address at all. Does it need to be addressed inside many organizations? Absolutely. I mean, there are certainly some organizations that embrace and empower people to be curious and they encourage it and they celebrate it. And people are at the edge of being quirky, if not weird. And that's a good, not bad thing, et cetera. But that's not the way most organizations are. You know, most organizations have grown up in Steve Blank's language. They have discovered a repeatable and scalable business model, and then they have focused on executing it. And in a world where change happens slowly, you can go and do that for years, if not decades. That's not today's world. So today's world, we all know, is a world of exponential change where lines between industries are blurring, blah, 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 blah. So the organizations, organizations have to recognize that they got to do something different to effectively compete in today's world. So you have to have that recognition, but then you have to recognize that the problem is not the people in your organization. They're people, they're humans. The curiosity is within all of us. 
The problem are the systems and structures in your organization that will root that out, that will go and punish people when they take well-thought-out risks that don't pan out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's easily addressable if you choose to address it, but you have to be conscious about addressing it because the natural state inside many organizations is let's push for uniformity, let's push for execution, let's push for no errors, et cetera, et cetera. And if we're trying to innovate and do different things, so we're going to need to have things that are not uniform, where there are errors, where things sometimes are happy accidents, and recognize that's all a really good thing. You know, it's one of the powerful things that I, I find about the, the DBS story. You know, when people hear about the kind of dramatic culture change with a bank in Singapore, I mean, that's the last place that you think to look to find a highly innovative organization. They assume this must be a case study where you swap out the entire leadership team or you go and make a bunch of acquisitions to get a bunch of millennials or Generation Z or Z into the organization. And that's not what DBS did. DBS said, we think our people are up to the task. We have to get out of their way. We have to give them the space to be the innovators that they naturally are. And in my view, if a regulated bank in a process-obsessed country like Singapore can do it, any organization in the world can do it. So again, I agree. I don't think it's that hard, but you do have to do the work. Well, what, what are the trade-offs? There's a lot of business academics that talk about the trade-off between explore and, and exploit. And so for your established businesses, it's okay to have these rigid systems. It's okay to have these bureaucracies. It's okay to have these scalable and repeatable ways of doing things. And maybe their curiosity and failure should be frowned on. And then you have the exploration side of things where everything you're talking about needs to be encouraged. But in your book, dual transformation, you, you don't subscribe to that dualistic way of thinking about things. It's almost as if you think that companies can have their cake and eat it too and apply innovation to not only these new outgrowths and new explorations, but also within their existing businesses. Does this recipe apply regardless of, of what you're trying to do? And it's just a matter of, of dialing up, dialing down, or is, is there is there a place for the traditional way of managing things? The 19th century Fordist approach. Is there a place for that left in the world anymore? So I think a, a decreasing place for it. So my, my basic viewpoint, and you know, we all have our biases, but I, I think the explore, exploit, perceived trade-off, I think in many cases is indeed a perceived trade-off. That in fact, those really are two sides of the same coin. They are things that should be thought of symbiotically that there are opportunities in every place in organizations to think about how you can constantly explore, how you can constantly look for ways to do something different that creates value. And in doing so, you will then be better at exploiting. So rather than saying it's either this or that, we can transcend that by saying we are perpetually looking for new and better ways to solve problems. And in doing so, again, we will be better at execution, we'll be better at exploiting. Now, of course, you do have edge cases where you really are pioneering. You're creating a brand new business model, a blue ocean, a disruptive idea, transformation B, white space, whatever language you want to put around it. And there, there is an even bigger premium on going and exploring and trying new things. But I think even when you're in a highly routinized, highly mechanized environment, there's plenty of opportunity to say, why are we doing it this way? Why couldn't we do it differently? I mean, I think, go back to the beginning of the pandemic. 
you go back to March 10th, 2020, right before the World Health Organization declares we're in a pandemic, and you tell people within a month, 100% of knowledge workers are going to be working remotely. It's impossible. There's just no way we can do it until you do it. And you recognize, well, actually, you can do it. You might not want to. That's a different conversation, but it's doable. And the thing that I think executives need to think about is, what are the other assumptions that we've made? What are the other things that we said? Well, it must be this way that actually are assumptions that we can challenge, that we can think differently around. I think there's a lot of work we still have to do to think about what is the right way for an organization to be structured? What is the right way for it to be managed? What is the right way for it to be measured? But my own point of view is a lot of the either ors that we have, including explore versus exploit, or we have to be profit focused or be good for the planet and a range of things like that are truly false trade-offs that we just haven't learned how to frame the problem correctly. And as we do, we will see that our organizations are capable of doing much more than we thought. None of this stuff is easy. Of course, there's a lot of deep work that you have to do to really do it, but I think it is very doable work. I think I agree. Uh, in that book, Dual Transformation, you start off with this idea of the fitness landscape. And I, I use that metaphor a lot in my classes. So in that book, you say there's these two types of transformation that businesses undertake. And then it's a question of how you can do kind of both simultaneously. And this is not simply ambidexterity, but it's something more. And I'm going to, I'm going to kind of push you on that, but would a simple way to think about this would be kind of, you have to, on the one hand, be trying to get closer to the top of the hill that you're already on while at the same time thinking about where that, that higher hill might be on, on the horizon. And these are two different activities. And managing them simultaneously is something that organizations, and at least these legacy organizations, I know you don't use that term, have to master in order to stay alive in today's world. Should we be thinking about it that way? Yeah. So, you know, the dual and dual transformation is exactly that. And, you know, the shorthand we have for it is transformation A and transformation B. Transformation A, where you're consistently trying to reinvent what you're doing today to make it as strong, as resilient as mm -hmm. possible. Transformation B is creating tomorrow. And you do have to do those things, in our view, in a world that's dealing with disruptive change, you do have to do those things in parallel. And the reason why I think this is a little bit different than ambidexterity, ambidexterity, left, right hand, but you're playing the same game. And the argument that we make in the book is that transformation A and transformation B, because they're different parts of the fitness landscape, different mountains, different hills, they are fundamentally different games, fundamentally different activities. So you know, I, I think the better metaphor is the old F. Scott Fitzgerald line that the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. This really is more paradoxical leadership than ambidextrous leadership because, again, you kind of feel like there's tension between these things, and you have to find a way to resolve that tension. Almost always, that's for reframing things in some way where you say, oh, this feels like a threat, but actually it's an opportunity if we learn to look at it the, the right way. We feel like our, our business is being attacked. Actually, our business is being enabled because we have all these new growth avenues that are opening up. Oh, we feel like we have these constraints that we have to operate within. Actually, those constraints open up new avenues for us. And again, this is a different mindset mm -hmm. that I think leaders need to take as they confront the challenges that we're all going to face increasingly in the 21st going to the 22nd century. You call it chameleon leadership, I think, in, in that book. And so there's this part C, and this part C is the connective tissue, right? The extent to which transformation B can borrow resources from the 
incumbent organization that's undergoing its transformation, A. This seemed to be borrowed from the resource and, and capability literature a bit. But when that literature focuses on strategic change, they seem to focus on adjacencies. And, and you left adjacencies sort of out of the discussion entirely. That was sort of one of the axes in your two-dimensional space that you more or less ignored. Did you just sort of say, well, that's, we understand that. We understand how, how strategy works with respect to capabilities, resources, and, and adjacencies. And so we're focusing on these other two. And so what is the, the importance of resources and capabilities in this part C? Yeah. So first about adjacencies, yes, you're absolutely right. So we don't go into it in depth and dual transformation because our basic view is this is something that good leaders should be thinking about. They're relatively straightforward to execute, go and identify them, go and seize them, done. So there's lots of other resources out there that can help you with it, mm -hmm. but it's a reasonably logical, rational thing to do to say, okay, where do we have capabilities that we built that can go into new geographies, new customer segments, et cetera, without forcing us to change the essence of who we are or what we're doing. So just go and do that. The harder part is when you start changing pieces of who you are. And in the two by two, one axis we have essentially is the business model. One axis is the customer problem you're solving or the job you're getting done. And we say, as you start to change both of those things, you're solving a new problem and you're doing it a different way, then you need to think differently about the organizational construct and the approach that you'll follow to do that. And that's what we call the more transformative B&A sorts of moves. Well, so wait, so an adjacency would be, say, Ford going from cars in, into trucks or going from the U.S. market to the Canadian market. The transformation A would be something like Netflix going from DVDs to streaming, which is not a, in any way a trivial transformation, but it's they're continuing to service the same customers. They're helping them to get a new way of, of getting a hole with maybe a, a different type of tool, not a drill, but a, but a laser, let's say. And then transformation B is when, say, Amazon goes from retail into cloud, right? So it's not delivering the same thing in a different way, but it's really doing something radically different. Is it, are those good canonical examples of the three transformations so that people understand what, what you're talking about? Absolutely. And kind of the shorthand for it is, Transformation A, you're solving the same problem in a different way. So the number one change that you will see is that the metrics on your operational dashboard will change. So, you know, Netflix is an example. When you're sending DVDs through the mail, there's a certain set of things you look at, like what does it cost for the postage that we're using? Where you're providing streaming services, you don't care about postage, you're watching something very different. So that's kind of the, the litmus test for are you really doing it. Transformation B is, the, is your competitive set changing. So, you know, as Amazon moves from being an e-tailer to getting into cloud computing, it's not competing against Walmart and Barnes and Noble, it's competing against Infosys and WhitePro and Microsoft and so on. So very different competitive set as it moves into that new space. So yeah, it's exactly the right examples. And those are the simple litmus test for, are you really moving to that side of the, the two by two that we described? Right. So then what is this bridge? What is the connective tissue? Why not just allow a completely new company to enter the space and do this. So that's one of the questions that I always ask is, why not just let the current business surf off into the sunset? Just fade away, buy back a lot of shares that people can then hand over to the venture capitalists and, and have the venture capitalists go and, and do their thing, right? I mean, most of the techniques that you're advocating for corporate managers with respect to discipline, experimentation, and so forth. I mean, this is what venture capitalists are, seem to be really, really good at. Why should we 
take our, our managers and kind of turn them into venture capitalists when we have venture capitalists out there? Why can't we just let these existing companies fade off into the sunset? What is it that existing companies can bring to the table when they're doing something that is that different from their current skill set? So the thing you ultimately have to believe, and it is a belief that I and my colleagues at Insight have, is that the large established companies have unique hard-earned assets that they have spent decades, if not centuries, building that if leveraged appropriately can allow them to do things that a startup would struggle to do. And you would then argue that creative destruction, as great as it can be, sometimes carries a really heavy transaction tax because a lot gets lost when the old gets destroyed. So you have to believe that there is something that's unique and leverageable that if managed in the right sort of way could allow someone to do something that a startup on its own would really struggle with. And as much respect as I have for venture capitalists and all the great work that they do, we also have to recognize that venture capitalists will focus on a relatively narrow set of industries, a relatively narrow set of geographies, a relatively narrow set of spaces. And there'll be lots of things that just aren't addressed. And if the big companies don't rise to the challenge and seize the opportunities, the spaces continue to exist. And you know, the thing that the big companies have going for them is they've been through the battles, they've gone through all the startup fights, and they built those unique assets of scale. It might be they've got a global distribution network, or it might be that they can work with governments all around the world to get regulatory clearance, or it might be they've got a trusted brand or they've got great technology or whatever. Those are things that can be, if used appropriately, really powerful assets. Now, everything you said is right. Is it easy to do? No. Is it unnatural for many organizations? Yes. Do they screw it up when they do it? Far too frequently. But when you see this combination of assets of scale with entrepreneurial energy, it really creates something that is quite magical. And I think there are opportunities for large organizations to do a lot more of it. And I wonder too, you know, we, we started the book, in hey, Dual Transformation. We just do this thought experiment about Eastman Kodak, which is a classic case study of an organization mm -hmm. that failed in the face of disruptive change. The thing that many people don't know is Eastman Kodak was so close to getting it right. And about now 20 years ago, they bought this company, Ophoto, which is one of the early photo sharing sites. And this is before Facebook existed. They bought it three years before Zuckerberg started coding Facebook. And you just do the thought experiment. What would have happened if Eastman Kodak said, what's our tagline? Share memories, share lives. Let's make it as simple and as easy as possible for people to share as much as they possibly can. They had the pieces to create social networking. They didn't do that. They screwed it up. But imagine a world where it is a well-run company that's got seasoned executives that are running social media rather than what actually happened. Does it mean that the next 20 years play out in different ways? I don't know, but it's an interesting thought experiment at least. So do you think that companies that have these internal innovation arms or these internal labs and research and development facilities, do they fail because they, they get too few resources or do they fail sometimes because they, they get too many resources? I think one of the things you're suggesting in dual transformation is that Maybe it's better to kind of drip feed these innovation arms with respect to resources so that they're kind of forced to figure out what works rather than giving them access to internal resources more or less willy-nilly. Are there situations where more discipline would potentially lead to more success with respect to the innovation part of the organization? 
It's a leading question, Greg, as you know, you know, an answer we're going to give is almost every circumstance, the problem is not too few resources, it's too many, not every, but in many circumstances. And scarcity in many cases is the entrepreneur's advantage. And I'm always mindful when you describe this in one of the lines from one of Dual Transformation's co-authors, Clark Gilbert, you know, Dual Transformation is really kind of two books in one. There's one part of the book, which is here are tools, frameworks, outside case studies, and so on about this challenge. And then there's another part of the book, which is Clark Gilbert's firsthand experiences actually living this. And for those who don't know the name, he was a Harvard Business School professor that ultimately got tapped on the shoulder to run a media organization and then run a university. So he's experienced this both as an academic and firsthand. And one of the things that Clark will always tell people is when you're working on Transformation B, when you're doing the new stuff, you have to deliver results. And the reason he says that is everyone in the organization is out to get you. There's institutional jealousy. They're skeptical of what you're going to do. And if you don't prove consistently that what you're doing is material and adds value, you're ultimately going to be taken down. Now, in the early days, the results might be more learning than earning in nature because you're still trying to figure out what it is you're doing. But a mistake that organizations will often make is they'll think disruptive innovation, transformation B, whatever you want to call it, it's kind of a science experiment. We don't really care about the results. Let's just go and try things. And then they wake up 10 years later and they've completely missed an opportunity by someone who's just moved faster than that. So sometimes constraining the resources, pushing for results, giving more when you see it, that's the way to overcome that challenge. Classic venture capital mindset and approach. Yeah, but the, the venture capitals use different metrics when they're measuring results, right? So generating positive cash flow early on is usually not a metric that venture capitalists care about. You have this great hypothetical example of someone who wants to bring bananas into McDonald's and the manager has a, a metric, which is food waste. And of course, if you move from frozen food to fresh food, your food waste is going to go through the roof. And if, if that's the metric that they're looking at, then it's immediately going to crush any of these new ideas. So how do you simultaneously have an organization with two very different kinds of metrics. Does there have to be like a solid membrane between these two parts of, of the organization? Is it up to the innovators to design and sell the metrics or does the manager, the top leadership have to educate themselves about different types of metrics for these different types of business? Yeah, a lot, lot of the questions. So let me give a, a couple of thoughts. So first. Going back to one of the discussions we had before, this idea of Transformation A and Transformation B being very different games. If you're going to play very different games, you're going to keep score in very different ways. So, you know, the idea that you need to have different metrics for different things that you're doing, I think is very well supported by academic research and, and field experience. So that's point number one. Point number two, how do you actually go and do that? Well, I think there's one part of it where top leaders absolutely need the education that different games follow different rules. They need to rethink what risk looks like. They need to rethink how they're measuring early progress and so on. So there is a, a big educational component to it. And then to me, it's just about being really clear as frequently as you can about what are the rules of the game? How do we measure? How do we adjust? How do we track? And being as transparent as possible so that people see what's going on. And I think one of the things that's a challenge in organizations is people kind of feel like it's guesswork. And then they assume it's yesterday's metrics that matter. And if it's actually tomorrow's metrics that matter, and you're not clear about this and you're not transparent about it, you end up having people talk just right past each other because they all have different mental models in their head. 
So again, the answer here is yes, you need to make sure you've got the structures and leadership needs to be educated and you need to be clear and transparent in the organization. And that can at least help to address what is a really hard to address challenge. So I'd love to walk through some of the examples that you mentioned in the book. There are quite a few examples, I think, of successful beans and successful innovation initiatives. And what I noticed about them is that they seem to all be developed organically within the organization, and they all even have different cool titles. I mean, I guess there, there's one example where this idea of the kickbox was borrowed by some other organizations. But, you know, a lot of these, like the plussing concept at, at Pixar and the monkey first, I love the monkey first one. What's the other one? The uh, the raccoon. And the, I mean, there's some like pre-mortems that you see over and over again, but there seemed to be this idea that if the organization owns these initiatives and if they put their own mark on them, you kind of get more more buy-in from the people in the organization. Can these things be imposed from the top? Do they need to have some democratic element to make them work? What are some of the hallmarks of, of successful internal behavior change initiatives or cultural change initiatives? Great question and lots of different avenues that we could go in. One of the things I, I always worry about when you have these discussions, you know, we have 101 beans in the book and my memory is not bad, but, you know, trying to remember all 101 of them at all times without having a cheat sheet over here. I always worry that someone's going to ask me about number 73. I'll be like, well, I kind of don't remember. We wrote that two years ago now. But so far, all the ones you, you mentioned, I, I could play back. At I would allow you to pause and, and go find the book and, and reference it. It's a good challenge, though. I think it's a good challenge to try and see, can you stop the author by saying, well, this was on page 263. You're like, oh, I guess I did write that at some point. Anyway, but you know, I do think there is something to this idea that having a kind of unique and fun and catchy name for things is something that does just classic habit change, does really connect with people and enable people to feel like, hey, we're not adopting the Amazon or Pixar or whatever approach our organization. It really is the approach that is purpose-built for our own organization. We might draw inspiration, of course, from the other ideas or other places, but we really do want it to be something that is ours, that fits who we are and what we're trying to do. So I think there is definitely some of that. In terms of where a good bean behavior enabler, artifact, and nudge needs to come from, we've seen cases where it's come from the executive teams. We've seen cases where it's come from grassroots level. It really can come from anywhere in an organization. If you really are trying to drive culture change at scale, of course, it cannot happen if the top leadership team is not actively championing the effort. But that doesn't mean that you can't have a subculture within an organization at the level of a team or group or department that's doing something that, of course, connects into the main organization, but is distinct in material ways. That's certainly something that we've seen in many places. You know, if you look at the example in chapter four of the book, it's a deep dive into what the HR department at Singtel had done, a very conscious and purposeful way to say, as an HR community, we want to branch out in a different way and ultimately have other parts of the organization follow behind us. So that there's nothing that stops anyone for any part of an organization adopting some of the ideas in the book. But again, if you want something like a DBS story where you've got a, an organization-wide change, if the CEO, in that case, Piyush Gupta, is not actively championing the effort, it's just too hard. It's never going to work. Right. And I think in that example, there is also this emphasis on the customer, but the customer is defined very fluidly, right? So if it's the HR group, then the customers are are the employees, right? And so part of 
every initiative is this emphasis on the customer, but the customer can be different depending on which part of the organization is launching the initiative, right? Absolutely. You know, so again, we define innovation as something different that creates value. Ultimately, if you are going to do something different that creates value, you have to solve a problem that matters for someone. And we say the general behavior that helps you make sure that you go and home in on the right problem is being customer obsessed. And we use the word customer because that's the way most people think about it, think about the end customer. But in some contexts, that will be a consumer. In some contexts, that will be a client. In some contexts, that will be a colleague. In some contexts, that will be a supplier, a distributor, whatever. The point is you want to know the person for whom you're trying to innovate better than they know themselves. You want to understand what are the jobs they're struggling to get done because that provides the insight that can lead to paths to innovate. Right. And I think you also referenced the CEO as, I'm not sure you used this exact term, but you, you refer to them as the chief experiment officer, the person in charge of the, the experiments that the organization is, is engaging in. And you mentioned also psychological safety, which is really all about giving people the ability to engage in experimentation, right? And to feel comfortable with the possibility and even the probability of, of failing with, with some of these experiments. I'm always kind of amazed at this concept of psychological safety. It took so long for academics to recognize it, and it took so long for the HR community to kind of recognize it. Why do you suppose that is? It seems obvious in retrospect once you look at it. All great ideas are like that, right? It's like five forces. Well, of course, there are five forces. I didn't happen to be any more or less than five. But no, I think at least a piece of it, and this goes to one of the big shifts that I think we're seeing in, in the world as we think about the fourth industrial revolution and what comes next and all that. I think a big piece of it is the managerial desire to control the world. And you want a world that is mechanistic. You want a world that can be predicted. You want a world that can be controlled where an error is a bad thing. An error is a failure of a system. An error is something that you need to root out. So I think that's a large part of it. You look at a lot of the quality movement, you look at Six Sigma movements and so on. All of it is grounded in the belief that you can control the world. And I think what more and more people are recognizing is that you can't control the world, that no one can perfectly discover truth without going and experimenting, trying new things and doing different things. And errors, if they occur the right way, are part of the process to success, et cetera, et cetera. So I think this mindset shift from previous worlds where engineers run the world and try to remove all errors to worlds where engineers might still run the world, I don't know, but to worlds where we recognize that errors are part of the journey to success, that's part of what I think is behind this. And I think something that a lot of companies struggle with, you know, they say they want to encourage fast failure or intelligent failure. They want to encourage psychological safety but they really don't. They really want to more tightly control the world. And you just have to recognize you got to let go a little bit. I did a, a discussion with Ed Catmull from, from Pixar tied to the launch of the book. And he said something at the end of it that just really struck me. He said, you know, I, I've had a, a long successful career and all that, but I recognize that about two thirds of the time when I've got a viewpoint, when I think something, I'm right. And that's pretty good. But one third of the time, I'm wrong. And what I'm saying just isn't true at all. And when you recognize that, it really changes the way that you think as a leader. If you recognize that you're wrong at least a third of the time, you get a little bit more humility. You listen to more dissenting voices. You say, okay, I think this, but let's go run the experiment. And it really changes the way that you think about things. And I think all leaders can learn from that. Ed Catmull, one of the most successful, one of the most decorated company builders we've seen in the last few decades, if he's wrong a third of the time, how often do you think you're wrong? 
Right. Well, I mean, we always quote Thomas Edison uh, whenever we talk about how we should accept failure and praise failure. And, you know, Thomas Edison is not a recent person. <laughs> He's been around for a long time. And certainly anybody who's in the world of science knows that there are more dead ends than there are discoveries. So it's still a, a bit of a puzzle as to why it's been taken so long for this to be explicitly recognized. And I like how you reference a, a couple companies that do things like when they have innovation competitions, they give, well, I guess they give beer to the winners and then champagne to the losers. And, and this is symbolically telling everybody that they should fail more often and, and be comfortable failing and that it's not something they should be be afraid of. I mean, it's, it seems like a silly thing, but it, it has very important cultural significance. Undoubtedly. And, you know, this also leads to one of the questions that people will often ask. They'll say, well, what about different cultures? It's all well and good to say that in a U.S. context, but you go to an Asian context where there's a loss of faith if you go and do something that doesn't work and so on. So how do you deal with this in different cultural settings? I think the thing that is interesting is if you go and study a lot of the things that lead to different cultural ramifications for failure, a lot of it traces back to the legal code. And in the U.S., of course, you've got provisions in the bankruptcy law where if you go bankrupt, it's not a great thing, but essentially everything's white clean and you start over. So I want to ask you a bit about universities, right? So I, I spent most of my life in universities and I'm always kind of astonished at how difficult it is for universities to to transform and, and change. So here, uh, these are these organizations where people are constantly discovering things and we've got academics that are pursuing new knowledge, they're experimenting, they're, they're failing, of course, quite a bit, but the organizations seem to be very static and maybe not always open to a whole lot of innovation. I like to say to my students that everything I learned about business, I learned working in restaurants when I was young because they, they have to innovate or they fail, right? They have to continuously find new ways of doing things or they fail very quickly. And then I had to revise that and said, actually, every, you know, I've learned about half of what I know about business working in universities, right? Because I've learned about this culture where innovation sometimes goes to die. So what is it about certain types of organizations? You, you highlighted some nonprofits that did some really interesting, innovative things, but how can you bring these concepts into a world where you're not constantly faced with the possibility of disappearing and going bankrupt. Yeah, I think one thing you can do is encourage more global pandemics <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> it's interesting. We did a, a consulting project for one of the big Australian universities a couple of years ago. And we said, you know, here's what we see coming over the next 10 years in university space. Very clear disruptive forces going on in universities. If we go back to transformation A, transformation B, transformation A, digitalization of the degree, Transformation B, disaggregation of the degree. So rather than go and get a traditional degree, mm -hmm. you'll have places that you can modularly stack your credentials together and create whatever kind of education you want. So that's what we said in 2018, 2019. So we, we talked to our client three months into the pandemic and they said, well, you were absolutely right about everything. The only mistake was you said this was going to happen in 2030 and a lot of it happened in 2020. <laughs> you have had some externalities that I, I think it forced a little bit more change in the university setting. But, you know, if you go beyond that, I think the number one thing that you need to do is create space organizationally for people to go and do the new things. Clark Gilbert was the president of BYU-Idaho. He helped to launch the, the Pathways program that BYU has that is an onboarding program that's driven tremendous growth within that system. 
And as he has gone and studied the places that have really done different things, Southern New Hampshire University, governors, and so on, in almost all cases, the organizational unit that is going and driving the more disruptive arm has pretty high degrees of separation from the traditional university arm. Universities have a ton going for them. The academic freedom that comes from the way that mm -hmm. the tenure system works, the endowments that create space for people to go and do things at some of the more well-heeled universities. Those are great things, but those also create institutional barriers to change that you have to consciously overcome by creating the organizational space to do different things. Clay Christensen, Insight's co-founder, was pretty famous for saying, I guess back in 2013, that half of traditional schools will go bankrupt by 2023. Whether that happens or not, we've got a couple of years before it comes true or not, but he would argue the fundamental disruptive forces are there. We don't feel it at the top tier of the industry because you never feel it there first. You feel it more in the second and third tier of the industry where people say, is it really worth spending the amount that we're spending for a degree that looks pretty non-differentiated? I don't know, but the question will be external forces, competitive dynamics, and enough people who are forward thinking. Does that lead to enough shakeup that you see more innovation inside the university setting? So I think we pretty sorely need it. You talked in the very beginning about untapped potential and how organizations have it. Gosh, if organizations in general have it, universities have it to the nth degree, I think. Right. And in your book, you talk a bit about the growth mindset and how important it is to encourage the growth mindset within the organization. And part of your book is really about organizations and how organizations can instill a habit of, of innovative thinking within them. But individuals can also do this, right? Individuals can work on their, their habits. And I think part of what your book is about is taking these ideas from the habit literature, which was really targeting individuals and moving it into kind of the, the organizational space and saying that the organizations can be a place that either fosters good habits or, or discourages good habits. Can you, if you're not a leader in the organization, if you're not sort of the CEO of the organization, what can you do to move the organization forward? I remember in the book, you're talk a little bit about Microsoft and the transformation that happened with the change in leadership. But within that organization, there are plenty of people who were innovating maybe in, in small places and small cells. How can individuals become more innovative within organizations that may not reward or encourage their, their work? I'll say three things here. So the first, I mentioned briefly the five behaviors that drive innovation success, curious, customer obsessed, collaborative, being adept in ambiguity, being empowered. There's nothing that stops any individual contributor anywhere in an organization from consciously following those behaviors. So that's the first thing. Go and link the behaviors that improve the odds of doing something different that creates value. Number two, the idea of the bean, the behavior enabler artifact to nudge, a bean can be planted at any level of an organization. So if you say, hey, the thing that our organization needs more of is being adept in ambiguity, do something like the, the cheers to failure ritual that we talked about before, beer for the success, champagne for the failure, and just do it with your team. There's nothing that stops you from doing that at a localized level. Number three, you mentioned the growth mindset, of course, from Carol Dweck's research at Stanford, now popularized by what Satya Nadella and team have done at Microsoft. Individuals can work on their growth mindsets. There's nothing that stops them from doing it. You know, one simple thing that I borrowed from my friend, Amantha Imber, who is the founder and chief maker of an Australian consultancy called Adventium, is to write a failure resume. 
So just go and write all the things that you did that didn't work. And most critically, what you learned from that. And the lesson that you inevitably take when you write a failure resume is that failure isn't fatal. Then you learn something from it and life goes on. As an example, my failure resume is five pages long. I won't bore you with everything that's on it. <laughs> but one why Adams saw on it is, yeah, I, I had a line from Ted Williams, a famous baseball player. He said, ours is the only field of endeavor where a man succeeds three out of 10 times and, and is considered a success. So 300 batting average is good and all that. But, you know, I, I went and looked at the proposals that I've had my name against, and I don't succeed 30% of the time. I had more than 100 proposals to do work with clients that didn't work in the last decade. Did I enjoy that? Is it great to have someone reject your proposal? No, but it, none of them killed me. I, I have had the good fortune of publishing a number of things. I've had a bunch of articles rejected. I've had books that haven't worked. I've received harsh criticism. Life goes on. So that discipline of writing a failure resume and saying, hmm, Actually, it turned out that I learned something from this. I grew from it. That some other opportunity opened up is a great individual way to strengthen your own growth mindset. Now, you've been in Singapore for 11 years. A lot of people talk about how Silicon Valley is the epicenter of innovation and everyone wants to copy the culture of, of Silicon Valley. And sometimes they'll talk about the successes that you see in other parts of the world. But a lot of people would also argue that there are things that hold back other cultures and other geographies. Have you found this message of failure, failing fast, of encouraging innovation? Have you found this to be more difficult to plant in other geographies as you've worked? I mean, you've been working in India, you've worked in Singapore and a whole bunch of other countries and economies. Is there a difference in openness to these ideas? Yeah, so I'd say a couple of things. Number one, at least my own experience, there was more of a difference 11 years ago when I moved out here than there is today. If you go back to, to 2010, when I, I moved to Singapore and said, okay, ask a, a Singaporean on the street, name a successful startup in Singapore, they would kind of look at you blankly and they might mention mm -hmm. Creative Labs, which was formed in 1980. You ask today, and people will talk about Grab, which is the regional equivalent to Uber, or they'll talk about C, which has Shopee, which is a big e-commerce site, Keras, and a whole range of different things. So as the startup ecosystem has really taken off here with lots of successes, but lots of failure as well, the tenor of the discussion has really changed in Singapore. You've seen this in other places as well. So I, I think the divide has definitely shrunk, but I think it exists in many places, particularly in places where there is a viewpoint that hierarchy matters, the more gray hair people have, the more you listen to them. If you're wrong about something, there's a, a perception that it reveals something about you, you lose face and so on. And the number one thing that I've seen can help with this is you really get people to change the conversation. You get them to change the conversation from starting things with, I think, to starting things with the critical assumption is. If you start with, I think, you have immediately personalized it it's what I, Scott, thinks versus what you, Greg, think. One of us is right, one of us is wrong. It's a personal battle, in many cases, a battle of beliefs. We've now gotten into the land of politics and religion and sports, and there are really no winners in this. If you start by saying the critical assumption is, you've split, you've depersonalized. It's not about me. I'm saying the assumption I'm making is, and you might say, actually, I've got a different assumption. Great. Let's go run a battle of experiments, not a battle of beliefs. Then when the experiment reveals the data, it, this assumption was right, this assumption was wrong, we might not even remember who had which assumption. So that simple vocabulary change of moving from I think to the critical assumption is, 
I think is a very simple way to help defray one of the issues that you will see in more hierarchical cultures. Are we there yet? For sure not. But I think we've made a lot of progress against this in the past decade plus. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And one thing to point out is that it's not always easy. A lot of times people think that being in a hierarchical organization that's relatively rigid, that discourages failure is unpleasant. And being in a place where curiosity is rewarded is, is pleasant. Well, I know some people that worked at, say, Bridgewater and other places, and it's not necessarily easy for everyone to be in an environment where everything is questioned. And sometimes I, I think that when we teach our students to do things like question the status quo, and then we send them off in, into certain organizations, we may be sending them on a suicide mission, right, into certain organizations because there's going to be a mismatch. So do people need to really know themselves well enough to know what kind of organization they're going to feel most comfortable in? Is, is this sort of a frequency-dependent thing? There, there's some people that really are more curious. There are people who are you know, more open to feedback and others that aren't. Or do we believe that everyone has the capability of succeeding in an organization that rewards creativity and experimentation? I certainly come to this with biases and the bias is that I believe everybody has an intrinsic innovator inside of them because the characteristics of innovation are characteristics of human beings as a species. So I have that as a belief. Now, is the from too bigger in some places or some people than others? Absolutely. Are some people, do they have more proclivities to want to experiment and try new things versus play? Absolutely. You look at big five personality traits, openness to new experiences is a measurable difference between different people. So that is absolutely true as well. So my belief is everyone can get to a level of competency. Some get to a level of deep proficiency and thriving. And I think the point that you need to know thyself, I think is a really important point. And also know the environment that you're in. I, I remember... Gosh, 20 years ago now, I, I was at, at a conference where Clay Christensen was talking about disruptive innovation. And someone he gave this case study about Alex Darbalov driving disruption at Teradimes, the CEO at the time. And so the audience said, this great case study, Clay, but I'm in a very different circumstance. There's disruption going on in my industry. My CEO doesn't get it. What should I do? And Clay, without pausing, said, you should quit. Because if the CEO doesn't mm. get it, there's just no hope. So I, I think sometimes there's dealing with the hard reality that if you are someone who is innately innovated and you're in an organization where your top leadership doesn't get it, maybe ultimately they'll discover, maybe ultimately they'll go and change things, but maybe it's time for you to go and think and go and act in a different place in a different way. So, you know, know thyself, know thy circumstance and recognize the change takes time. I, I think that's the, the best advice that I can give. When you're recounting the story of when Steve Ballmer grabbed the iPhone out of one of his employees' hands and smashed it on the ground. I was thinking two things. First of all, it's pretty difficult to smash an iPhone with your foot. But secondly, I was wondering, you know, what happened to that person? Did that person quit and go work for Apple? Or did they just put their head down and stay at Microsoft uh, and suffer for another couple of years? I always wondered what happened to that poor fella. Anyway, Scott, it's been fantastic talking to you. These books are great. I highly recommend that people check them out. I don't know whether we even scratched the surface or did full justice to them. Dual transformation, how to reposition today's business while creating the future. Scott, I look forward to more publications and, but eat, sleep, innovate, how to make creativity an everyday habit inside your organization. And of course, this one, which you co-authored, I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks again for having me for all the great questions. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.